everybody, welcome to Campaign HQ. We are going to go deep into battleground states today. So I'm not going to have much of an opener because I want to get right to that, the states that will determine the presidential election. Obviously, we continue uh, to most importantly from a health and economic standpoint to live through this historic pandemic. I do think from a political standpoint, you really, Donald Trump's nervousness is obvious. He is uh, spending every moment he can trying to blame China, trying to lie about how well he's dealt with this crisis, and most importantly, uh, encourage opening up the government, even if that's premature, even if it's not a well-thought-out plan. So he always thinks about himself first. So I think he's beginning to understand the political toll this is already going to take and may take. Obviously, the economic and health toll being most important, but he views everything through his own narrow uh, political self-interest. The other thing I think that's going to be really, again, most importantly, is the lives it affects and the economic impacts of this, but it also is going to have political ramifications is, you know, there's a lot of small businesses out there who aren't able to get the help they need. Uh, Instead, it's going to big chains, big hedge funds. You see now that um, Trump's properties themselves are applying for aid, which I think will be politically uh, super damaging to him. And it's very, very difficult for just the average worker, particularly, you know, in states like Florida, where they make it deliberately hard to apply for and receive unemployment benefits. So I think you're going to increasingly see small business owners, workers frustrated that the people they think are getting the most help, the help that seems to come uh, with the most ease uh, and the most speed are those at the very top, you know, connected folks, folks with a lot of business, big businesses, folks with political relationships. So that dynamic is, I think, going to be worth watching very, very carefully because if the economic predictions are at all right, uh, we're going to have massively high unemployment for quite a long time, uh, even with growth snapping back whenever things get back to, well, things are never going to get back to normal. But when you begin to see more businesses operating, of course, you'll see GDP jump, but you're still going to have huge sectors of the economy affected. Um, Austin Goolsby, our guest last week, talked so eloquently about that. Um, but I think you're going to have a lot of workers who aren't going to return to jobs right away or aren't going to get the same hours. And if they feel like they've not been helped sufficiently compared to those at the very top, that's going to spell big trouble, I think, for Trump and his administration. Um, My guest today is Dan Wagner. So Dan was our chief analytics officer uh, in 2012 in President Obama's re-election. He was involved in data and analytics in our 08 effort. He uh, comes from the University of Chicago uh, and now is the CEO and founder of Civis Analytics, which is does a lot of work for uh, in the private sector too, but is such an important piece of the progressive infrastructure for campaigns and organizations to provide data and, and analytics and modeling. So, you know, back in 12 and, and 8, you know, I had uh, countless uh, almost running conversations with Dan and his team about battleground states and, and different pathways to victory, um, what we were seeing in our data, how we could adjust our campaign, whether that's our spending or Barack Obama's time or surrogate's time to take advantage of opportunities or try and shore up weaknesses. So we're going to go deep with Dan Wagner, who knows the country as well as anyone from a political standpoint, a voter standpoint, to talk about uh, what he thinks the core battleground states are, uh, to go deep into them about what the pathways to victory are and where there might be, you know, more obstacles than we'd like. Talk about some of the expansion states um, that maybe Biden could put in play talk about some of the states that Trump may want to put in play that he lost narrowly. But hopefully it'll give you a really good sense of the map, 
um, how we're going to win some of these states to get to 270, and also talk a little bit with Dan about the role data plays in presidential campaigns uh, and how smart campaigns use that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Wagner. Dan Wagner, thanks for joining us on Campaign HQ. Thank you for having me. Well, as always, when you and I chat, I'm, I'm eager to nerd out on some numbers. All right. Well, that's kind of my specialty. <laughs> and before we dive right into the battleground states, let's make sure we agree on what they are. So what is Dan Wagner's battleground state list? And if you could single out whether you think there's one tipping point state or two. So and it's important to note that in 2016, there were three very close tipping point states that collectively were worth. Uh, 70,000 votes, all of them within nearly half a percent. But if you look at the the current polling, there are roughly three maps. Um, And typically when you run a general election, you try and think of scenarios of what are the primary maps, because some of those tend to have correlated demographics that could swing one way or the other. So I think there there are three uh, key ones that we should be looking at. One is the Rust Belt map which is the traditional 2016 map. And in that world, you have Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, In that world, you have a higher density of low educated um, white voters. Um, So a higher proportion of those, you know, 40 to 50% of the voting age population is going to be within that demographic. Um, And so the election is going to hinge on exactly where the support is among those people. Uh, Historically, Joe Biden tends to do well among those people. So that is um, why people put so much focus on that. In addition to those being the 70,000 vote states, um, Joe Biden tends to have um, historically do better with those, those groups of people. So that's the, the kind of like current context of the game. Uh, the second map that people talk about is the Florida map. Florida map, obviously, Florida obviously represents a huge swath of electoral votes. Um, and this is a big effort that we had in 2012 because as, again, it's a massive tipping point state. So the Florida map is you either get a Pennsylvania or a Michigan and you get Florida. Um, And that state in Florida, there's a few things that you're looking at. Um, Functionally, you're looking at kind of three states within Florida. Um, You're looking at the Miami area, the Orlando area, and then northern or kind of Tampa, Orlando, and then northern Florida Um, one that represents Miami, a pretty broad base of um, Hispanic voters. It's important to keep in mind that um, in Florida, you have, a, you have a very kind of diverse population. When we say Hispanic, that's, that's not really an accurate term um, of exactly who those people are. You have uh, Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans, um, Puerto Rican Americans, uh, increasingly um, uh, immigrants from Central America, And all those people, especially those who are refugee populations, which are increasingly large in those areas, tend to have different political viewpoints. Um, Second is Orlando. That's a Puerto Rican population. In addition, a lot of those people are refugees from a natural disaster. Um, Many of those people have pretty negative perceptions on how Puerto Rico was treated in the aftermath of the hurricane. Um, And then in northern um, Florida, that looks more like your traditional southern state. And so the route to victory there is there's no such thing as Florida. Um, The strategy is how well you can play across those three different demographic groups. And important, again, to highlight that Hispanic isn't a single demographic. It's, in fact, one of the most diverse groups in in the entire world, representing, um, you know, a a fourth of the the, uh, total geography of the planet. And then the final one is the Democratic growth map. And every single cycle 
people try and say, where are the places where we can expand the electorate? And in the case of this election, um, the Democratic growth map is Pennsylvania and Michigan, and either in Arizona or in North Carolina. The growth in Arizona is obviously the growing body of um, Hispanic voters. Um, and as we saw in 2018, historically high rate of participation among those voters. Um, historically, registration rates um, in Arizona have been very, very low um, and very, very low among Hispanics. A lot of that has been corrected um, in the most recent election. And then the second growth state is North Carolina, which has kind of undulated um, up and down between elections. We won it in 2008. It was more difficult in 2012. And there's two key groups that are important in why North Carolina may be competitive. Uh, one is as uh, from 2016 to now, or frankly, in, in 2014 to 2016, one of the highest growth areas for Democrats has been with um, educated whites or kind of educated liberals. So as college, um, essentially college educated white people have via polarization gone more towards the left. Um, and that population has grown in North Carolina that has been favorable to Democrats. And you see that reflected in the gubernatorial elections and in the congressional elections, um, despite gerrymandering. Um, and the second is obviously from an African-American population. That's a significant portion of the electorate. So again, just kind of summarizing, and I, I kind of went on for a long time, is three maps. One is the traditional Rust Belt map, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. The Florida map being cognizant of the three Floridas that exist within that state. And then finally, the Democratic growth map, which is some combination of the Midwestern states in addition to an Arizona or a North Carolina depending on where we can make um, inroads with those different uh, constituencies. So Dan, it's okay. Let's kind of go west to east amongst that core group. And we'll start with Arizona. So back when you were leading analytics for the president in 12, um, and you were always very creative about coming up with scenarios, uh, you know, Arizona just was not going to be close. I think we lost it by about nine. Hillary, just four years later, gets within three and a half. Kristen Sinema wins it in 18. So talk a little bit about what is the pathway to victory there? So we've got registration, turnout, we've got um, persuasion. Um, Arizona was a state um, that got, if, if I recall, about six and a half percent went to third parties in, in 2016. Whether you think it's a state, Trump can register a lot of voters. Just uh, I'll hand the, the microphone over to Dan Wagner to do what he does best. But talk about Arizona and what what is our pathway to victory there? Yeah, it was interesting. When, when we looked at this in 2012, 2016, et cetera, the, the fundamental problem with Arizona and somewhat with Texas is that the registration rate among citizen or especially naturalized uh, Hispanics was extremely low in some places. And I think in terms of the top states, it was like Indiana, Arizona, I'm not sure what the other ones. And if you had the same participation among the voting age population, of um, Hispanics, as you had in other states, California, et cetera, then you were looking for a state that was implicitly much more competitive, or in Nevada, which is literally right across the border. And so that's traditionally been, or historically, the problem with Arizona. Um, some of that has gotten um, better, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure why it's gotten better. I assume just kind of like the behavior of the, um, the people in the state and their organizing capabilities. But that's historically been the problem that we've had um, in Arizona. Um, but obviously, the vote share has been going up there. 
And I think it's probably, again, due to the, the two reasons. Um, one is if you have higher registration rates among Hispanics and then higher vote share among Hispanics, that's going to put you in a better position in Arizona as they represent a large portion of the race. And then Arizona, like in other states um, in the Southwest, has a lot of in-country immigration um, of older people from the rest of the country. And to the extent those people are more educated populations, those people are going to favor Democrats. So those two trends are going to play off against each other, and those are going to help determine whether or not the state becomes bluer or redder. Um, the first one probably having a, a higher weight of importance than the second. Um, and obviously that that went to a that helped obviously Kristen, who was a, a very good candidate, um, win there. Um, and it is important, I think, to mention obviously in the case of Arizona, that candidates matter a lot. And in terms of that race, um, while you can see an upward trend, uh, she was significantly better than her opponent. Um, so it's important not to overread into that because the candidate um, versus her opponent had, had a lot to do with the victory and probably was um, over trend in that case. Would you say, and um, we'll talk about this in North Carolina, they, they seem similar, uh, perhaps in this regard, that it is a pretty um, even blend of persuasion, you know, in, in the suburbs in Maricopa County, registration, which you just talked about, um, even though the registration is getting better, turnout's still hard. It, it's, it's a good example of a state where if we don't excel at all those things, we're not going to get blown out, but we'll come up a point or two short, do you think? Yeah, I think um, when you think about, it's a little bit different. I may, maybe this is a broader discussion in terms of Traditionally, in a previous election, we could look at registration, turnout, and persuasion, and we could project the amount of work that we need to do against those three objectives because we understood the value of each of those different things with known tactics. So we knew based on history that if I spend $20 million in a race and a TV ad is worth XYZ, then I can spec this many votes out of it. And we knew based on history that if I ran this type of door campaign or this type of mail campaign, I could expect this many votes to come out of it based on history. And same with registration. But in this election, all that stuff is basically going in the garbage. And the reason why is because we have a lethal illness that is running around the country and we have a reset in terms of what is going to be the home experience of people leading up into the election and then obviously in the uh, election day itself. And so we have to rethink about what are some of the values of different tactics. Registration, I think, is going to be the most critical place to put investment versus previous cycles. And the reason why is quite simple, is that we may not have an opportunity to register people in person, which has been one of the bread and butter places for us to place work. And we've always kind of known this is the percent of the population that's registered. This is the population that's not. We estimate the number of known vote share against those different groups. If we register 50,000 people, our vote share is 80%. We can get 40,000 uh, net votes. That's amazing. In this cycle, it, it's completely different, though, because we don't have an exact tactical measure of, nor do we have an actual tactics on how to do voter registration online in a lot of these places. We've experimented it with in lots of places, which is, you know, uh, sending people mail, seeing how they do, 
Um, but in that case, the response pool tends to be heavily biased towards certain groups. We've tried enlisting people online voluntarily through ads and then sending them mail back, but that tends to be um, very expensive. And so, again, this is all kind of like messy cost benefit, but just kind of playing it out in our head, voter registration is maybe one of the most, I, I personally think in the, in the medium term period will be the most important because it will be so difficult and it will be, uh, depending on the regulation, made more difficult um, by people who are averse to those people being registered. You probably get what I mean. And the design through which we do that will have to be completely reinvented. So the macro point I think we all understand is traditionally we've known the investment to put on turnout, registration, and persuasion, but a lot of those measures are completely gone now. And based on that, I think that registration will need to create an entirely new model. And as a result of that, we'll need to place significantly more investment there. Support or turnout, we may be looking at a world in which vote by mail is the predominant uh, way to vote. Uh, in which case, again, the tactics are entirely different. And then in the case of um, persuasion, the population is going to spend 50% more time online, um, but online in a context of deep fear and uncertainty. And that will move the relative emphasis, especially around um, candidate candidate communication direct to people um, uh, to an online format. And Apart from Trump, who's kind of good at that, nobody else knows how to do that. So there's going to be a lot of consideration of complete tactical reinvention. And based on the measurement of that, that will help us dictate where we put investment. But up front, I think that registration is probably the most important place, giving some of the risks of in-person registration becoming nearly impossible. So Trump won Arizona with 48.7. So I'd like to you to talk about, you know, what you think his ceiling is, and this is related to what you think may happen with third parties this year. But then also in each of these states, I want to talk about his ability to register a lot of people that look just like his MAGA base who aren't either registered or infrequent voters. So what's his ability to raise his high watermark in, in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona is interesting. So if you look at just like the aggregate vote share in polling right now, and this is the New York Times analysis they did, they did a couple weeks ago, um, and the rest of the polling data out there shows the, the same kind of thing, is Michigan is the highest among battleground states. They have it at 4% um, in aggregate. They use only live, uh, live, um, live pollster or live interviews, but we have some you know, um, skepticism of that, but you know, we'll kind of keep that aside for right now. Um, you have Michigan at 4.1%. Uh, Biden lead, Arizona at 4% Biden lead, then New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. The interesting thing about about Joe Biden's candidacy is that old people love Joe Biden. Um, And that historically has not always been the case, um, but he has an unprecedented lead among uh, elderly Americans in the United States. And Arizona has a disproportionately uh, older white population. And that that kind of, I think, is reflected in why we're seeing the polling numbers so high and why Biden's ceiling is much higher than a traditional Democrat in previous cycles is because older white people, um, they love Joe Biden. And so that is a, a particular about his candidacy 
um, that probably benefits him in a state like that, that is not going to benefit him in another state that looks generically more like the average state. Um, and that is kind of like a very, uh, a very particular thing about his candidacy um, that, that right now looks, looks very real. Um, and we'll probably put Arizona um, on the map from day one. And obviously all the reservations aren't in from a TV perspective, but when they in, I think you'll see that expected on both the Trump side and the Biden side from day one. Uh, and again, on Trump, what do you think his ability is to grow his ultimate raw vote share through registration and frequent Republican turnout? And what do you think his, you know, again, he won at 48 seven, you know, what is, do you think, is it, can you speak to what you think his hard ceiling might be, or is it too early for that? Yeah, I haven't looked at, I think, um, in terms of the change in turnout between, correct me if I'm wrong, and you might want to fact check this, but between 2014 and 2018, I don't think that the change in turnout was as large as it was in other states. So it wasn't like a Texas or a Montana, et cetera, where you saw these massive changes in the portion of the voting eligible population that was voting. And as a result, typically what you'd say is if midterm turnout was much higher, thus introducing a lot more people to the voter pool, you could expect in the next election that a lot of those people would vote, thus the turnout would go higher. And and I think you're gonna see that in states like Texas and uh, Montana. Um, but we didn't see the same proportion in Arizona that we saw in those different states. So I would expect that the the lift in what you're going to see in participation in Arizona isn't going to be as small, and that more of the difference is going to be in terms of winning the vote share um, of those people who have, have probably already voted. That's my kind of bias towards it right now, just based on historical patterns, but that is what I would guess right now. And, you know, I guess uh, just back to his win number. So We'll, we'll talk about this in other states too, but do you have a sense like from a third party vote standpoint, is there a point if that third party vote share were to drop below four or 3%, does that make it not impossible, I guess, but really hard for Trump to win? Like how much third party flight does he need to win? Are there any third party people who are coming in right now? Well, I think there'll be somebody on the libertarian ballot and green ballot. I guess yeah, it's always the case. Exactly. You know, maybe not in Stein like in terms of vote getting ability, but but you know, I just think this is an important part of the discussion, which is if if in fact that's right, maybe it's not. But but if there is a number, if if Trump can't get the fifty in some of these states, then that number becomes awfully important. Yeah, I mean that's a good point because in 2016 we had uh, you know Jill Stein who was uh, you know arguably uh, you know sponsored by an, an overseas uh, power. And, and she was able to get enough votes in some states to, to keep Hillary from winning the election. It's unlikely that we'll see that again, just because at least right now, there isn't a, an available candidate to, to take the spot with the same number, with the same kind of, uh, quote, enthusiasm and numbers, though maybe you could see that. And I don't know if you're going to see the same proportions um, with a Johnson from a libertarian perspective, but you could. I mean, a lot of his... Um, you know, right now, uh, his Republican approval for him is as high as it's been for largely any candidate ever. Um, but there are a lot of people, and keep in mind, most people who are self-reported independents are actually voting Republicans, and most people who are self-reported Republicans are are Republicans implicitly. And so the question is, among that independent pool 
how many of them are dissatisfied and may choose a libertarian because it's associated with their values. The item going against it is that people are more polarized than ever. And there's this phenomena that people have talked about, you know, kind of over the last 10 years in academic literature. And then most recently, Ezra Klein talked about it called negative polarization, where increasingly people aren't voting for their candidate, they're voting against the other guy. So they're voting based on tribal parameters as opposed to preference or love for a candidate. And in a context where people are voting on tribal parameters, that will lower how much people want to vote for third party candidates because they'll pick Trump to screw the other guy or they'll pick Biden to screw the other guy. And that is, we don't obviously don't have the numbers to support that. But assuming that that trend continues and that theory of tribalism continues as a proportion of the electorate, then I imagine the support for third party candidates would continue to diminish. On the Green Party side, I think this is a practical matter. I'm not sure we'll have a candidate with that level of sponsorship. On the Republican side, ideally that negative polarization uh, wouldn't permeate enough to bring in some of those self-reported um, independence for a libertarian bid from people who don't feel that their opinions are represented. Um, again, lengthy answer, but the, the long-term trend is probably away from it. Um, but I don't know how it's going to happen in, in this election. I don't know if that, that answers your question exactly. But would your sense be, I mean, Trump clearly benefited and you know, there's a lot of data that came out after 16 to, to demonstrate how. Trump definitely benefited by third parties. Yeah. Do you think that it may be more so even if it is lower, is it more mixed this time? Um, because there may be more voters who say, I'm just, I can't do a Democrat, but I can't do Trump. So I'll go park. Like, what's your sense of that? Or we, we probably don't have enough data, but I'm just curious. But keep in mind, like there, there's two ways, there's two ways it could go. One is it could follow this trend of negative polarization. And in the trend of negative polarization, where it's not so much about you liking your candidate, it's about you not liking the other candidate and voting along with your tribe, that would diminish the percentage of votes that go towards 30 third party candidates. The second trend is incre increasing skepticism and distrust towards the system itself. And libertarian voters can speak very highly to that. Um, and they may be able to attract a certain portion of voters. The context of this, though, is going to be within essentially uh, the context of this is going to be within a economic crisis of epic magnitude where a third party candidate could probably take um, could take advantage of the uncertainty surrounding that. A Green Party candidate that kind of celebrates some of these broad environmental themes, I don't see that capturing it, but um, a libertarian candidate that is speaking to a broken system among a context of Americans that are increasingly out of work, um, or maybe in something more crazy like a Pat Buchanan reform candidate, that could be something that, that breaks in. Again, my, my point of view on this, and I, I hope it's useful, is that a lot of the historical parameters that we've used to predict elections um, are less and less useful in a world where we're looking at you know, 15 to 20% unemployment, um, potentially cases of malnutrition, 
massive generational divide in terms of wealth. And on the third party, who's going to be able to speak to those anxieties better or worse? I don't think you're going to see something on terms of environmental voice a la Jill Stein. You may see something on the more conservative side that's going to be a populist voice, which is something that came out of in 1992, 1993 with a Ross Perot, probably not to the same degree, but you could see a populist voice coming through and that populist voice could look kind of more like that mold a la nationalist figure or in a libertarian figure, but it depends on who the person is. Um, I think at, at this point, given that history is probably a worse predictor of now, you have to you know kind of lean on some type of intuition. And I, I think that is where I, I, I would see it fit um, based on kind of long history. So it could end up hurting him this time. Yeah, that's my that's my loose prediction, but that's the point of this stuff. Right. People will feel better listening to this then. So let's go to a state where he clearly did benefit from third parties, a state you and I have spent an enormous amount of time thinking about and working in through the years, Wisconsin. So uh, Paul Ryan was on the ticket in 12, uh, fiercely contested. Um, we ended up winning it, if I recall, Dan, by more than we thought, about seven points, a little north of 200,000 votes. You know, in, in 16, um, Trump wins it with just 47.2, wins by a um, little over 20,000 votes, actually won the state getting a, a couple thousand votes less than Romney did in 12. So like we did in Arizona, let's just talk about Wisconsin. So that does seem to be a state where Trump will probably do a decent job of finding new supporters to add to his pile. But what's your sense of our pathway there? And, you know, when you were talking in the beginning about the different maps, you know, you mentioned there's like a Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida map, a Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina. So pretty clear you think of those three uh, northern states, Wisconsin's the, the most difficult of the three to get back. That's correct. Um, in terms of like vote switching, Wisconsin had the largest uh, vote switching of any of the nominal battleground states. So Wisconsin followed by Iowa, followed by Ohio. So yeah, we... we, we uh, you know, we won it by a pretty large margin. I think it was, yeah, six and a half, seven percent. And then Trump won it um, by 0.7 percent. So that's a, I guess, just a huge, uh, huge change. Maybe Ohio was worse than that. Iowa was worse. Um, but a lot of that change um, uh, was due, as we know, to the collapse in support in terms of this, this long history of low educated uh, white voters that didn't have a proportional population of highly educated white voters to counterbalance it. So if you think about a state like Virginia, which is on the opposite side, and when you look at the primary, um, especially, you see a state that has two major constituencies in, or three major constituencies in a place like um, Virginia, which is a, um, a low a population of white non-college educated voters then you have a population of white college-educated voters that kind of circle Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Arlington, et cetera. And those suburban counties are growing uh, terrifically um, with a combination of a smaller population of African-American voters um, kind of spread differently based on history. And in Wisconsin, you don't have that counterbalancing population of college-educated white voters where support has grown considerably for Democratic candidates in 2016, and then even more since then, which is reflected in the results in 2018, um, where Trump, obviously, among those populations, still has a pretty high amount of emerging support. Um, 
So in that, I, th I think when you look at some of the polling results, why we are so narrow in Wisconsin versus a place like Michigan and Pennsylvania, it's just due to the representation of those demographics, which is a high population of non-college educated white voters, a smaller population of white college educated voters, um, and then a small African-American population in Milwaukee and surrounding areas that unfortunately historically has pretty low voting participation rates in 2016 had historically low voting participation rates. I don't know how much we can change that, but the essentially the, the composition of that electorate is the primary reason why it would be the third Rust Belt state that we would think we would win and um, why it would be kind of like below potentially a state like in Arizona, um, probably very close to being below Arizona. I don't know if it would be lower in priority than in North Carolina, but that's the reason. But fair to say you believe we, at this point, and, and I I don't know, we'll see if you agree with this, but I, I do believe we have two tipping point states right now, Wisconsin and Arizona, and we have to treat them equally seriously. So so, so in Wisconsin, um, and again, to your point about there's a lot we, we just don't know, and, and a lot of things we've learned through the years will be thrown out given the pandemic. But, you know, we're going to have to... Wisconsin is just a state we have to win back some of what we lost in blue collar and rural areas. Now, that doesn't mean winning some of those counties, right? But it doesn't mean getting back to Obama margins, but it means we have to. And do you see the potential for, for Joe Biden uh, to be able to do that, to do what he needs to do? Because it seems to me Wisconsin is probably destined. And again, it may be unemployment is so bad, we end up winning a bunch of states more easily than we think. But if it's as close as we better assume it is, it seems like Wisconsin, it's hard to see it being decided by more than a couple of points most, right? So so we got to max out turnout in Milwaukee. We've got to do a great job on the campuses. We've got to max our, out our suburban college-educated margin, which, as you point out, is is lower there than it is in, in, in the other battlegrounds. But then we do have to do, it seems, as well in rural and blue-collar areas there as we will anywhere in the country to have any chance of winning. Yes, and change the law. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about Wisconsin, by the way. So the Trump campaign is clearly going to make a big effort in Minnesota. Is there a scenario where you see they lose Wisconsin and win Minnesota? Uh, that would be very improbable. Where they lose Minnesota and win Wisconsin? Right. Very improbable. Meaning Biden. So so that's my question, really. Is, is If you don't think there's a scenario where Trump could lose Wisconsin and win Minnesota, then from an electoral college standpoint, um, it's it's moot. And so if you're the Biden campaign, the question is, do you, you know, Minnesota was very close last time, but if you don't think there's a chance that it falls, I mean, do you just, you know, and these are decisions we had to go through in both presidential campaigns, right? You have to say, you know what, you know, you just, you really have to focus on that path to 270. So would you invest in Minnesota or no? Um, Purely from a presidential camp, there's other reasons to do so. A lot of it depends on money and he's not going to have a lot of money. Um, and so like, I think this is important. There's an important conversation to be had about this is the function of a campaign is to take your resources and then assign them around the tipping point States um, on a path to 270. So you kind of, you put it around those tipping point States of the States that kind of like go from the 250th electoral vote to the 300th electoral vote 
because you have some uncertainty within them about what actually is the outcome. So you can say, I can estimate it um, within a margin of errors, let's say, you know, two points, maybe three points. So I'm going to focus all my investment on the states that kind of go within that two to three point range. Um, However, it depends on what your total level of resources are to meet that. People and financial. People and financial, right. And so I do think um, in terms of paid media assets, their ability to um, broaden that scope either to safe states or stretch states is entirely contingent upon the, lo- the amount of available capital that they have. In our case, in previous elections, whether it was 2016 or 2012, we were operating in a world um, between the campaign proper and then some of the outside entities with roughly a billion dollars. And when you have a billion dollars, you can spread your bets proportionally to a wider bench of states, especially towards you know aggressive states. In a world in which you have simply just kind of you know less available capital, you're going to put that on the states that you know are going to be on those tipping point states, and less on the ones that you you think are definitely safe or marginally safe, and those that are marginally stretched. And you don't really have a choice. Um, and so in that world, which unfortunately is the world that exists right now, you would see the investment concentrated among a smaller set of states and less among some of those lean safe states um, because of you know obvious diminishing returns. If they had a lot, then maybe that would be something where they, they'd place it. The current polling doesn't suggest that Minnesota is you know kind of a is kind of in jeopardy right now. Um, but that would be the formula that you'd use. Less money you have, the more you concentrate it around the three or four states that are important for 270. The more money that you have, the more you, that you can invest in uh, lean safe or lean stretch. Um, and that that's just the formula that you'd want to use. My judgment is that given limited resources, they'll only be able to focus on some of the critical states that are important. However, um, this is an interesting world where depending on where things go, the battleground, or regardless of things where things go, I think the, the battleground here is on the internet. Whereas before the battleground was this kind of like tactical hand-to-hand working on doors and stuff like that. Um, and there's two trends on that. One is just, we know this through the, the measurement itself, is that the efficacy of a lot of traditional field programs has declined as people have become sadly less comfortable talking to, interacting, engaging with strangers and community in general, which is kind of like a sad trend in America more broadly and um, is kind of a symptom of a, you know, broader disease about American, you know, social beliefs. Um, And the second is just with where the disease takes us is those types of campaigns may be impossible. And thus the investment that campaigns are going to want to make is, how do I engage my pool of supporters or my pool of activists to engage with their networks, regardless of where they are, or more importantly, concentrated in some of these states um, that have a broader map around 270? Because circumstantially, that's where they live within the network of one of my supporters. So, for example, if I have somebody in Minnesota, um, that is a, um, uh, non-college educated white voter 
and I can engage them into a social media persuasion program costlessly, then I'm going to be willing to spend a significant amount of digital energy around that in the same way that I would do with Wisconsin, because I can do it with without a lot of extra effort. And that is going to be, I think, the, the model about how campaigns think about it is what are these broader national programs where your supporters can use your material or their own organically created material to speak to their own broader base of friends using themselves as the influencer because they have more credibility in that social network than does the candidate himself. And that was a primary ingredient in how Trump has been successful is building up a network of supporters that can influence their friends. Obviously, people disagree with some of the communication, but the strategy itself um, was, you know, it, it was quite good. Um, but he did it with a very little budget. And I think in this case, that is something that Democrats or other campaigns will be seeking to emulate and should. Well, this time he's got a massive budget. He has a massive budget and you don't have a choice. You have to compete. You have to build some orthogonal strategy. Let's go to the east, to Michigan. Uh, state we won hard to classify nine and a half point win as a battleground, but Romney did contest it. Big win. It was the closest race painfully in 16. Trump won it by two. Another state where his win number was really, really low, uh, 47.5. Uh, fair to say of the battlegrounds, this is the one you think will be the first to fall back into the blue column? And if so, why? Yes. A lot of it, I, I think, is if you look at some of the, I haven't looked at the numbers super carefully but if you look at the numbers in 2018 about the change back to democrats in 2018 they were very very large um, a friend of mine is the congressperson in cd11 i don't know the exact change in her vote share but that was this guy his name was dave trot um, a very conservative figure it was a safe Republican seat for many, many years, and she won the district by somewhere between five and six points. So you're looking for a, a district that was historically held by a Republican with you know 10-point margins or so, swung to a Democrat by five-point margins. And these, these are just kind of massive changes. And a lot of that was due to changes in Oakland County, which is the city's um, most populous county, I think. It may, may be Wayne County. I may not be correct there. But I think that's the primary signal that we have is how did vote share change from 2016 to 2018? And you, you had a little bit of a reversion to the mean um, in terms of history that um, set the terms of what that should be. And then just the raw polling itself. Uh, when you aggregate across a wide base of polling, you tend to see that Michigan is pulling the highest among those three Rust Belt battleground states. So you have, a pretty, you have two very good data, data points that, that indicate that. So, and like, like Milwaukee, um, you know, Detroit, uh, probably the, the other major city where you'd really point to turnout being an issue, um, less, you know, Philadelphia was actually, uh, maybe not what you'd want, but, but not, I don't think the same, uh, cause for concern. So how would we lose Michigan? I mean, when you th think about it from a number standpoint, like, cause I agree with you. I mean, if we lose Michigan, we're, we're probably just toast. Yeah. It's going to be very, very difficult. Michigan is, is having a very hard time with the COVID crisis right now. Very, very hard. And it's, it's hitting African-American communities 
in Detroit, arguably worse than any other geography in the United States. Um, it is so bad that they have put uh, cold lockers outside hospitals to recover bodies because they don't have enough room in the morgues. So you are looking for at an outsized level of mortalities due to the nature of the disease and also the healthcare system itself in Detroit being so bad. And that is unique. Um, and it is unique because it's a population that has deep poverty. It's a population where healthcare systems are not functioning very well. And Governor Whitmer, she's doing a great job, but she's doing a great job with the, the resources that she has, which are light, especially in the context of you know, a system that is unable to care for its people um, and poverty is pretty rampant. So that, that you know, resets the terms in what is going to be the context of Michigan um, of socially, how is that going to be felt? Are people going to experience that and say, we need, um, uh, and a lot of this in terms of the position of Biden is we need a new type of competence. Um, or do people look at it and say, once again, the system has failed us. In 2016, that was obviously the message is once again, the system has failed us. And the positioning of, and the narrative of the Biden campaign is two key things. One is this is a new, this is a return to competence. And then second is um, obviously a positioning of, um, a positive positioning of the programs that they can build to help people out. And so Michigan is unlike other states and that history is a bad guide because the epidemic itself is going to tear through Detroit, arguably worse than any other Midwestern state, followed only by New York. And what really depends is how well the message around competence and available programs are made to benefit those people. And the result of that will be whether or not people check in or, or check out. The second item is just going to be in terms of those suburban counties, um, especially in Oakland County, is whether or not the Biden at all can preserve their margins in those areas, especially the ones that they had in 2018. Um, and so far, according to the polling, at least, it's been relatively stable. Right. That's very helpful. So let's go over to Pennsylvania. So uh, you got Michigan, which is the one most likely to tip back to our side. And if it doesn't, we're in deep trouble. Wisconsin's going to be an absolute brawl um, go either way. Pennsylvania seems to be in the middle. Is, is that kind of how you see it? That's correct. According to the numbers right now. Okay. And, you know, again, a state we won more narrow than Michigan um, and Wisconsin. We won it by a little more than five points in 12. Trump, again, won super narrowly only by 0.7. A um, little higher vote share. The third party vote share there was like under 4%. But what's our pathway to win in, in Pennsylvania? I don't think it's any different than Michigan. It's probably about the same in terms of the mix of population uh, proportion of demographics. It's very, very similar. Um, you have one major urban center. That urban center is surrounded by a population of highly educated, increasingly wealthy suburbanites. And then the rest of the geography of the state almost uniformly is a non-college educated white population. Um, and many cases in that, you know, the, it's it's deeply saddening because you know 
economic unemployment had been falling in those areas. Incomes, even median incomes, have been rising over the last two years. You you definitely seen wages rising in some of those places. Savings rising, general um, quality of life rising in those different places, um, and that was reflected in uh, at least some of um, the at least in some of the approval numbers, but now, um, again, it's going to be where, where blame is assigned as a result of the crisis. But I don't think that the underlying, um, analysis of Pennsylvania and Michigan is going to be that much different. It's almost like you took a state like Michigan and put it on its side and you you called it Pennsylvania. and, and, And that's that in terms of the composition of those constituencies and the historical patterns of those constituencies. Right. So, you know, I think obviously um, they needed to do better and could have done better. But if you look at the Clinton um, margin and turnout in Philadelphia proper in the suburban area, you know, I think performed better there than in Milwaukee and Detroit. Um, I think there's a lot of focus, understandably, when you look at the devastation electorally, Iowa, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, uh, 20, 25 point swings in some rural counties. But when you look at Pennsylvania, what jumps out to me really is, you know, we won Erie County by 18 points. Um, you know, Clinton lost it by a couple. Counties like Northampton and Lackawanna, you know, in the northeastern uh, part of the state, Trump did really well in. So that that would seem, you know, so obviously Biden needs to do even better in Philadelphia in those suburban areas. And he's kind of a unofficial resident of those areas, which probably helps a little on the margins. But but it does seem these. this is the place where the blue collar uh, strength of Trump was most pronounced. And it seems to me that that's got to be, um, it's all important, obviously, in a presidential campaign, you have to do it all. But those are, and those are bigger counties where if we can, you know, maybe not get quite back to Obama margins, but move in that direction, it's a massive number of votes we get back. Yeah. I mean, and again, in terms of the exit polling, these are places where non-college educated white voters um, are a majority of the population. And a one point swing in those populations means that we win. Um, literally a point um, in a case of Pennsylvania where Trump won by, you know, 0.7%, one point, I guess you need one and a half points uh, nets out to nearly 0.7 and net. And then we win. So literally the margin on here are, are so, so, so tiny that if we can win those literally by 0.7% or one, 1.5% among these non-college educated white voters, then we win the election. So in these cases, you know, they swung by massive proportions, but we're not talking about winning back huge proportions of these electorates. We're talking about winning back 2% and 2% with a good program. And certainly our candidates were able to do that in 2018 by a much larger amount. Um, But in this case, we we don't need a larger amount. We need a much smaller amount. We're talking two points and the two points in Michigan and Pennsylvania will ensure that we win. These are very, very small numbers historically. Right. That's the source of comfort in those two states is we don't have to replicate 18. The problem is once you get out of those two states, you know, the degree of difficulty, you know, is harder. And that's that's the nightmare scenario is we're stuck uh, just south of 270. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about North Carolina, Um, a state. It it still um, really uh, gets under my skin and angers me. We didn't win it again. Our Our favorite state. Yeah, we won it in eight. We had to pull back, as you recall. The president didn't travel there the last sixty days. We, to your point about battlegrounds, we just thought it was. We had other things like Ohio and Florida that were going to be super close, and and we ended up losing North Carolina by two. Um, 
know, Trump wins it by a little more than three. So, uh, but you know, we've had good gubernatorial races there, had really good 18 elections at the local and congressional level. Talk about our pathway in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I guess like the, the nice thing is that our, our fall there was smaller than it was in some of the other states. That's good. I think it's the same mental exercise that we went through before is how much investment do you want to put in a stretch state like this? I think, you know, we had a billion dollars and when you have a billion dollars, it makes sense proportionally to put investment in a state like North, North Carolina, because you can say these are all the states that were, are within three to 4% of 50%. I want to broaden my investment to all those. But in a context where your resources are much more limited, then you're only going to stretch it out to the, the states that, that are within, let's say, 2% or 1.5% of 270. And that would um, suggest that proportionally you reduce your spend in a, in a place like North Carolina, which is a state where we, um, you know, we haven't done as well historically, even though it's a state where the long-term trends are in our favor. Um, however, in 2018, we did we did very very well in North Carolina. I haven't exactly done some of the analysis to figure out how well those effects are um, today. I would say that a state like North Carolina could be a better bet than a state like Florida, based on some of the performance that we saw in the last election, um, especially from a marginal resource perspective, because North Carolina is much smaller than Florida. So if you're in a place of bet. It might be better to place a bet in a North Carolina versus a Florida because your bet is so much smaller than what you have to make in a Florida. Florida, if you invest, you have to go all in and it, it kind of sucks. But with North Carolina, which is you know half the size or maybe a little bit more than that, it, it might be a safer bet from an efficiency perspective, even if the stretch might be a little bit longer. Right. But it's still smaller than Florida, but still larger than Wisconsin. So as a backup to leaving Wisconsin, seems to me when you look at North Carolina, there is a bunch of, well, we probably, if we could register, not, you know, maybe not an A plus effort, but a B plus effort. And we know the suburban areas are moving in our direction and, um, you know, Biden might be the kind of candidate. So it's, it's not a Northern state like Pennsylvania, but it's not deep South. Maybe he can win back, you know, two or 3% of some of those non-college whites, but so that that's it's going to be tricky, right? Because I think there's going to be, you say, well, I, I see how we win it. Um, it's probably less than a fifty percent chance, but it's not twenty percent either. Correct. Yeah, if you have a billion dollars, it's a sensible investment. If you have a quarter billion dollars, it, it may not make sense. So that's uh, for folks listening and listen. Given the pandemic and all the economic uh, hardship people are going through, there's a lot of people out there who might have thought of giving Biden some money they can't afford to do so. But if if you can afford so and you're thinking about whether it matters, just listen to Dan. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the most tragic thing in a presidential campaign is not to be able to contest a state you think you might be able to win because you don't have the money. Yeah. And fortunately, in this case, like, you know, financial resources, whether it's on the Republican or the Democratic side, do have a very, a very large impact. Right. So uh, you spoke about Florida in the beginning. Let me start with this, which is you remember back in 12, um, there was some members of the media who wrote it off. Um, if I recall, some media organizations stopped polling Florida because Florida, they said Romney was going to win it uh, by so much. I think there were some in our own campaign who questioned our investment there. It was a massive investment. We won narrowly. We won narrowly in 12. Gillum Nelson lost narrowly in 18. Hillary lost narrowly in 16. So, I, so there's the cost of it. 
and it is a massive investment. Um, but it's 29 electoral votes. And the one thing I don't see Florida, even with Trump now being a resident, even with Trump probably being able to really blow out turnout even more than he did in 16 in parts of the state, it's still going to be close, right? So if you left money aside, which you know we don't live in a fantasy world, but you think Florida is going to be close again? Yes. Well, that's what makes it so tempting, right? That's yeah. I mean, this is this is the, the Faustian bargain that every campaign has to make. Yeah, particularly if you feel so good about Michigan, and you know, Florida just puts you over the top. You could lose everything else. Talk a little bit about because I thought Florida of all the states that that I went through with you in eight and twelve, it was the state that required the most elasticity in your thinking, right? Because it was like there's a you can register a lot of voters down there. There's a lot of people who you just don't know if they're going to vote or not. Um, and you've got so many new residents moving into the state. There's just a lot of flux. But, you know, when we did the modeling, it was like, well, you know, it's not guaranteed. But if a bunch of things happen more than not, we'd win. Yes. And so is that still the case down there? I mean, we literally had to register over 100,000 people. On our own. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we put, I don't know, we put 50 million dollars at least at the minimum into it, maybe closer to a hundred million dollars. We had to do an enormous amount of work to get it to 1% or less than 1%. And that that's literally just the question is, can you spend $50 million to register 100, 150,000, 200,000 people in a world in which registration is going to be very, very difficult. And if you can, and it's a good idea, and especially if you can find some new creative tactics that leverage mobile technology, et cetera, to do it in a way less expensive means than we've had to do before. And I think a lot of young folks are coming up with way more efficient ways of, of running these programs than were done in the past. And if you can do it, that lowers your media commitment considerably. Um, and that kind of changes the nature of the game. But when we looked at it, obviously, and if you look at it under kind of you know historical media patterns, then your level of investment has to be um, really, really large. And I don't know where we were at, but it was somewhere north of fifty million dollars. Oh yeah, I think it was closer to hundred. Well, the other thing you just don't know in Florida is you've got you know this dangerous doofus as governor, kind of a mini Trump mishandling the crisis down there. So, and then of course the question is, if it gets worse down there and, and Trump pays a price for that. Was that just going to happen anyway? But to your, I mean, listen, Trump only won it by a little more than 100,000 votes. So the kind of registration you're talking about uh, can make the difference. So that'll probably be the biggest decision the Biden campaign has to make is because there is no half in in Florida. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. COVID is COVID right now is affecting two big populations. One is the elderly um, and especially elderly people of color. Um, and then the second population is young people who are one group is feeling the crushing effects of the disease. And then the second group is feeling the crushing effects of the economic damage. Elderly are feeling the crushing economic damage. Uh, sorry, the crushing effect of the disease. And then younger people are feeling the crushing effect of the economic consequences of that. And in Florida, I don't know what the disease is going to do itself, but if it runs its course, you know, it's going to have a, on a per capita basis, a pretty, you know, it's going to be, you know, pretty sad what it could do to that population and how well they react to that. But right now, it's the disease is coursing through a lot of um, retiree or nursing home communities, and the consequences of that have been pretty severe. And the political consequences, again, I, I don't know; those are unpredictable right now. 
um, but they could, you know, they could lean against the incumbent. Well, you know, of all the battlegrounds, you know, this is the state, you know, most dependent on travel and tourism. So Dan, we'll, we'll go sort of rapid fire. So let's talk, these would not be tipping point states, but if we are uh, in the fall in a situation where unemployment, you know, north of 10, um, do states like Ohio and Iowa, you know, that, you know, we used to uh, win not too long ago that have slipped pretty precariously away from us, get back into play? Uh, Ohio, no. Iowa, maybe, but probably not. And how about Georgia and Texas? Again, given our discussion, I'm sure Biden will do better um, than Hillary did in Georgia. And, you know, she did better than we did in 12. But losing by three gets you no electoral votes. And again, you know, maybe if you had a billion and a half dollars, you'd go invest there, right? But what's your sense of those? The white whales. Mm -hmm. Do you think there'll be core battlegrounds by 2028? I mean, people, people always say Texas will be a core battleground state by 2028. And um, the reason why is because they see higher participation rates among Hispanic voters. And that is true. The thing that a lot of people don't take into account, however, is that you have a higher influx of white conservative voters into those states from other geographies that are going against that trend. So those two things counterbalance each other. And that's one of the reasons why Texas hasn't become more liberal at the rate that people want. So will it? I don't know. My, my judgment is I've always been skeptical of it. Georgia, though, perhaps. Uh, yeah. But same thing. You have a lot of people who are moving to Georgia from other states. Right. Uh, so on the Trump side, we talked about Minnesota. So they'll invest there. They have the money, but not going to be a tipping point for him in all likelihood. Uh, how about New Hampshire? That would seem the other state they, they might want, want to try and make some noise in. Uh, yes. I mean, it makes sense for them to make an investment in New Hampshire, but... Um, we have a very strong Senate candidate, which is good, um, very good. And um, historically, we've done we've done quite well there. Um, it would be I don't know where it lives, maybe in like the two hundred and fifty fifth electoral vote or something like that. But that would certainly live on the map of importance. Right. Talk about um, just you know at a very remedial level. Why is data so important in a campaign, data and analytics? I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm not an expert like you are. So for folks who are interested, and then we'll talk about um, you know, Trump's at least current advantage in that regard um, and what that could mean. But, but talk about why it's important and, and the things campaigns can do with, with good data and analytics. Yeah, the, the purpose of data is to help you understand, define message and distribute resources. Those are the, the two key purposes. And the reason why it's important to use data to build message is that our intuition as political actors is often wrong because we don't have touch points with all the voters within the country and we can bias our message towards our immediate experiences. Some people don't have this problem because they kind of have that, you know, that that correct intuition, but those are a minority of people. And so you need data to build a representative understanding of what people think and how you should talk to them. Again, because your brain is constantly biased towards your immediate experience and your immediate experience is not representative of America at any given moment or a state at any given moment. So you need that. The second thing is the distribution of resources. At any point, in a presidential cycle, you have to ask a very basic question is what states are closer or farther away from 270 and 270 being the only thing that counts to win. 
and you want to invest in states closer to 270, invest less in states that are farther from 270, the data helps you measure which of those states are and which of those states aren't. So you're constantly desiring to recalibrate your message around what is a true perspective of the electorate. You're trying to calibrate your investment on what is the true state of uh, the electorate in vote share in those states and making sure that you're doing those um, correctly and iteratively again and again. And that is how data helps you contribute. Thank you for that. Uh, And then last question, Dan. you know, as we did in 12, um, you know, incumbents tend to have a lot of advantages in campaigns. One of them these days is around data. Uh, now, unlike unlike us, Trump's been running since the day he swore uh, he took the oath of office and they've been running a lot of advertisements and, uh, you know, on, on, on digital platforms to enhance that data. They've had a lot of rallies. So A, where do you, where does Trump have an advantage right now over Biden? How should pe- how concerned should people be about it? And where are the areas that you think are most important for Biden and other groups um, to invest so that, um, you know, uh, again, data makes a huge difference in, in close races and close states. So if it's a close state, we're just making better decisions than we might be able to now. Yeah, there's, um, he has, you know, a few advantages, kind of three specific advantages. One is financial resources. Um, two is a um, a very strong activist base and a database of that activist base that he can utilize with direct communication and then communication over the social platforms, Facebook and Google. So he has a unique relationship to them where he can kind of create a container of information that's useful for him. Uh, and then three is the value of incumbency and earned media. You know, he has a kind of portal to the public that other people don't have um, that he can, you know, he can control and he can use press conferences and stuff like that. So summarize again, uh, money, uh, an activist base and a database of those people through which he can create a unique contained information experience. And then the broad benefits of, of incumbency. And those are, those are very, very strong benefits in terms of what a, an opponent should be thinking about. There's, you know, five important things. One is the law and how the law is going to be, you know, kept or changed to benefit participation um, in certain states where, you know, the disease may have long-term effects. Two is how do they phrase the messaging around um, uh, this kind of a competence, um, which is kind of a debate between Biden and Trump right now is who is the person that can best represent uh, competence. Three is the program and how can a Biden organization build a campaign with no money by leveraging uh, the kind of like aggregate um, base of um, Bernie, uh, the liberals and kind of the moderates that are represented by all those people and how well they can build a collective action campaign. And that actually, that kind of like that model looks more of what Trump was in 2016 Uh, in early 2016 in terms of his financial resources relative to his base than it does um, a 26 uh, Hillary in 2016, where you're kind of like looking at uh, the proportion of money spent between different areas, Um, how they can speak about COVID being persuasive without being malicious. Um, And then I think, you know, again, just financial resources. 
All right, Dan Wagner, thank you for your time today. Very um, informative and instructive. And I think folks are going to learn about your kind of tour across the country for the states that will determine this next presidential election. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, David. Well, I could do that all day, talking about states and demographics and and voting numbers with Dan Wagner really was a a joy for me. I hope you also got some value out of it. You know, I largely agree with Dan um, with where he sees the race. I do think Michigan is the most likely uh, state to to tip back into the blue column for Biden, followed by Pennsylvania. Uh, You know, then you look at at Wisconsin is going to be harder and Arizona uh, is going to be harder, but because there's no guarantee you'll win Wisconsin as hard as we're going to fight for it, we have to have that in play. North Carolina is also a good backup. You know, Florida, I thought it was really important for Dan to talk about Florida, which is there's no reason to think that Joe Biden couldn't win Florida. Not going to be a gimme, may not happen, but going to be close enough that you'd like to contest it. And so that's where Biden's ability to put together the financial and human resources to run a winning campaign there is going to be absolutely essential because it would be tragic for Florida not to be a core battleground state. It would just be a backbreaker for Trump, if not a checkmate for Trump if he loses it, uh, simply because we don't think we can see our way to fund that. So I know a lot of people out there are obviously having to really um, be much more careful financially. Uh, some people who might have thought they might give 25 or $50 to Joe Biden aren't going to be able to do that now. Completely understandable. But for those of you that have the ability still to give financially, uh, listen to Dan talk about Florida and you know even a state like Georgia and even North Carolina. These are all going to be states that you've got to make sure are funded properly to give them the green light to be a, a core battleground. I thought it was also interesting for Dan um, you know, to point out, even though he is just a brilliant uh, data analyst, there's a lot um, that's going to be unpredictable in this election. Um, part of that's Trump, but a lot of it's the pandemic. And you know, there's a lot we don't know, which means these campaigns are going to have to have a pretty broad view of who's a real persuadable voter, who might be Uh, turnout risk, states that you might be able to put in play. I I just think you're going to have to be incredibly opportunistic. And again, that's going to take both human and financial resources for Joe Biden to take full advantage of that. So I thought that was really important for Dan, you know, to suggest that even people like him, there's a lot they don't know compared to what they know right now. Uh, And this is going to be incredibly fluid election. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. I I hope it, uh, in some cases, may put your mind at rest a little bit. In other cases, it points out that uh, uh, it's pretty easy to see how we get the north of 260 electoral votes. Getting over that 270th, you know, there's no obvious candidate that you say 90% of the time we're going to win that state. So it just reminds us how much hard work there is to do to get Trump out of office and put Joe Biden into the White House. Uh, So thanks for listening and look forward to being with you next week.